today. Um, today we're going to be finalizing, wrapping up the series that we started at the beginning of the month called Better Together. And um, the heartbeat of that series, like I said in the prayer even, is um, about better relationships and a better togetherness. And, um, and that hopefully over the last three weeks, what you've found is that there have been helpful tools, that there have been some things that we've done, processed through, that we found in the Bible to help us with some barriers to relationships. That one barrier to relationship that we even dived into the first week was the issue of just a definition of love. That for many of us, our definition of love tends to be more me-centered than we-centered. And how Paul unpacks that is a beautiful thing. And I would encourage you to check it out uh, on our app or um, through the podcast. But that we moved into our past can be a barrier. That we all bring in a default setting. That we all bring in baggage. And that that baggage, if not evaluated, if, if it's, we're not intentional about looking through it, then we bring it into our relationship. And what was caught and seeing growing up and what's been taught to us through experiences and relationships with others, we tend to repeat. And uh, hopefully you walked out of that week with just tools to replace the default settings in how we do relationships. And last week, Jason um, talked through how to fight and how to do it in a way that fights for the relationship, not destroys the relationship. Because none of us are perfect. And we're going to have conflict and we're going to have disagreements. And learning how to fight, learning how to have a conversation and a debate and so that you move forward together as a friend or as a couple or as a family is incredibly important. I wish the month of February was a lot longer because our goal was that February would be this month that you would, you would learn to love at a new level. Because all of us have so many different issues and there's so many different challenges in relationships that we could talk probably for the rest of the year about different challenges relationships present. And so what I wanted to do this morning, knowing that February is ending tomorrow, is I wanted to give you one last major tool that you could bring and utilize and practice in a way that would push you forward it would be one of those generic tools that would help you no matter what it was as you move forward into the future. Um, so one of the things about relationships is you get to know someone. We're engaged in a relationship, sort of. If you're here every week or you're here once in a while, you're getting to know me as I'm, I'm getting to know you. Um, I talk a lot more up here, so you're getting to know a little bit more about me. One of the things that's on my bucket list is to be on Jeopardy, all right? Um, that is legitimate. I have actually tried out and did not make it, but I will not give up. I will press on, right? It's, it's a life dream of mine to make it onto Jeopardy. Um, and uh, I, I won't get into Narwhal and how if I'd known that question, maybe my life would have been different, but that's just over there. Anyways, um, but, but one of the things that to, to, to be effective in Jeopardy, you have to collect random facts or you have to be one of those people who just love random facts, right? I'm one of those people. It's probably why a lot of individuals don't like to hang out with me because when they're like, I wonder why leaves change colors in the fall. I'm like, oh, actually, it's because the, and they're like, no, I wasn't really asking a question. I was just thinking out loud, right? I'm that guy, and I try to not be that guy, but I recognize that I am that guy sometimes. For example, red barns, okay? Let's just get really random for a second here. If you've ever noticed that red barns are this iconic image of farmland America, the reason why is actually quite interesting. See, when settlers were pushing out west and they were starting to settle in the prairie lands, they didn't have Walmart. They didn't have Home Depot where you could build it together. You know, you had to do everything resourced from the land. And so they would build barns. Um, and when they built barns, because of the Midwest and the weather conditions, tornadoes, 
um, the rain, the wind, a lot of the barns didn't last very long. It would deteriorate pretty quick, and they're like, we've got to have a better weathering approach. So they began to mix the soil with oil and produced a, a very rudimentary paint. Well, because of the Midwest's soil um, has a lot of iron oxide in it, um, iron oxide, when mixed with oil, would actually turn a reddish hue. They would then take that mixture and they would apply it to barns and it would actually help the, the wood weather the, the kind of the climate there in the Midwest because, believe it or not, there is no other, there's no other place in the world where you find the climate that the Midwest has its tornado alley, right? There's no other place on planet Earth that has that kind of condition. And so as they're practicing of this weathering approach, um, putting this oil on barns, people start to copy it. As things become more and more established, as people continue to pass out west, um, iron oxide, because it's just really prevalent in the soil, red paint becomes the standard for barns. Now here's what's interesting. Long after barns were being built and painted, iron oxide started to become a little rarer. It actually became more expensive, but barns kept being painted red. To this point, to even today, a traditional barn color is red. And it's no longer for the reason that it used to be. The reason barns used to be red is because they had to be red. Now they're red because that's what you do. Now here's the challenge. We do the same things with relationships. Because we've always done it one way. Because we've always seen it done one way. If we're not careful, we will always default to that setting. We'll always repeat well, this is how I saw relationships done in my household. This is, well, this is the way I watched my grandparents do it. And we'll slip into that practice of doing it the way it's always been done, and we'll do it without thinking about it. And what I want to do in our next 20 minutes together is, is give you a tool to change the way you think and to change the way you act. It's okay to paint a barn red relationally speaking, as long as you're doing it intentionally. Most relationships get into trouble, get into to drifting apart because they fall into the trap of doing the same thing over and over and over again. And I'm not just talking about marriage. Right? For some of us, we've had friendships that seem to have a pattern. Or we've always struggled getting to know someone really well. You've always been like, I always feel alone. I don't have a lot of really quality friends. Or I always feel like people get close to me and then they start to, to get away really, really fast. And I don't know why. And you've never asked them and they've never told you to your face that you're really clingy and needy. And it's unfair to you because you've spent your entire life just doing the red barn, the red barn way. You've never even thought about, is there a different way of doing relationships? And to, to take us there, to answer what does it look like, this, this final tool, I want to go back to the passage I started with at the beginning of this series um, at the first week of uh, February, which is one of the most famous chapters on love, and it's 1 Corinthians 13. But I want to just use one verse from 1 Corinthians 13, because this verse kind of captures the essence. But just let me set the backdrop. If you weren't here a couple weeks ago, I just want to remind you what, you what 1 Corinthians 13 is, because 1 Corinthians 13 is often repeated... Um, if you're in uh, any kind of wedding ceremony or any type of like 
Uh, Valentine's Day card, typically these verses get kind of plucked out and they're used generically and they're completely separated from the original context. And so what you have is you have Paul, who is an apostle, one of the the chief leading um, kind of agents of Christianity, that he, he begins to press into areas where Christianity has never been. He begins to share, talk, discuss, start churches and, and begins to train and develop the people at the churches. And one of the ways that he did it was he wrote letters. And he would write letters to these churches, and these letters to these churches would become known as books of the Bible. The Bible is not one book. It's a bunch of books put together, and it's really not even technically books. Some of them are just letters, like the letter to the, Corinth, the, the church in Corinth we call 1 Corinthians because it was the first letter that we have. There's another letter, and we call it the book, the second Corinthians, right? And 2 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians. So he writes this first letter in, in, in an issue that here's this church that's in a culture very similar, very similar to ours where people were very me-centered. They're very much about the I, and they got an I problem. It's all me. It's I. It's, and, and that's it. And that reality of the culture has crept into the church And now the I, the me, has started to cause a conflict overall with the we. And they're arguing, they're fighting, they're picking sides, they're debating. And it's just like this this community of faith is falling apart because everyone is all about the me. And so he writes this letter where he's addressing all these issues where the me issue has come to the forefront. And in the middle of dealing with these issues from even how they manage their services, There was so much conflict that they couldn't even do this because it would break down into discord and argues and like fights and how people approach things. And in the middle of talking about the service planning, Paul says, you know what? Let me just give you something that's even better than everything I've said. Let me talk about love. And he begins to define love. But here's the disclaimer I want to give you on the front side because I think what you're going to find today is a very helpful two-step thing. This very simple two-step for love to go into the future and your future relationships. But here's a disclaimer I need to give you. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, first of all, I'm so glad you're here. Because Encounter Church is filled every single week with people all along the spectrum of belief. But here's one of those things, here's one of these moments where I need to give you a disclaimer. That Paul is speaking to a people and he has an assumption that they have access to someone. That maybe you don't have access to yet. That they have, they have this secret, they have this, this kind of thing going on in their life that someone who's not bought in and believed wouldn't have access to. Because what he lays out for them, Paul redefines love. He redefines what love is. He says love's a verb, love's this commitment, it's rooted in choice, it's not a feeling, it's a focus, it's a decision. And those things, feelings, they're good but they're not primary. And he's, he's unpacking all these things and he's saying to them, you should love like this. And the reason why is because they've all said, they've all placed their trust and their faith in God and how he's loved through Jesus. So he's assuming that God's spirit, who's giving them assistance, who's giving them power, who's with them, in them, through them, helping them to love is, is uh, the plug in the wall that they can access. Now here's the challenge. If If you're not a Christian and you're like, I'm not sure about the faith thing, um, this is where the disconnect happens. Because 
faith is very much similar to taking the outlet and plugging it into the wall, and there's this invisible power source that starts to flow through. Paul is saying you have access to not just the definition of love, but to love himself, and his name is God. And you have to tap into that love if you're going to be able to do what I'm telling you to do. Now, maybe you're here and you're like, I'm, I'm not sure you're like me in college. I'm not sure about the faith thing. I would argue that we all do faith really well. Some of us just don't want to do faith and, or aren't sure about faith or aren't sure about questions that we have about faith and certain things. Because I would say if you ever stand on an altar or in front of a judge and you look into someone's eyes and you make the vows and you say till death do us part, that is a faith step. It's saying, I don't know how this thing is going to play out in the future, but I do know that I'm with it, I'm in it with you. Every relationship we enter into is a faith step because we don't know the future. We don't know who they're going to be in the future. We're stepping into something, and you can call it whatever you want to call it, but it's faith. And the same faith that you bring to that commitment is what Paul is saying you need to be bringing with your relationship with God to channel this energy that I'm going to tell you about. Okay, that's the disclaimer. Here's the good thing. If you're not a Christian and you're like, um, the ones who are in this room who are Christians, you have permission to watch their lives because they are connected to that source. And this is something that's expected of us if we follow Jesus. And so you get one of these moments where you get to sit back, pop popcorn, chew, watch, and observe, and say, okay, let's see if this thing is real. And even if you're not, you get two helpful practices today that you're going to be able to apply to your life and I think make your relationships better. So I had to give you that disclaimer because I feel like it's going to be a little unfair if you hear what I'm about to say and say, I don't think that's possible. So here's the thing. Um, 1 Corinthians 13, 7 is uh, is awesome verse. Um, I love words. Um, I love like looking at words, studying words. You've probably picked up, I'm just a nerd, right? And um, if, if you're like an English major and you're working through 1 Corinthians 13, you're like, love is patient, love is kind. There's this flow that Paul has. There's this rhythm that he has. And all of a sudden, verse 7 kind of has this like record scratching moment, like, and it changes rhythm. And it goes, it's all, it always protects. It always trusts. It always hopes. It always perseveres. That this verse 7, this sentence inside of this whole section, looks and feels differently from the rest of the chapter. And the reason why is because Paul is writing this letter in the Greek. Not in English, right? They speak Greek back then. So he's writing this letter in Greek. And what he does in verse 7 in the, in the Greek, the language he writes this, this letter originally in, is he creates a mnemonic device for the reader and the listener to remember. He's like, okay, I, I understood that what I just dumped on you is a lot about love, that love is patient, love is kind, and it doesn't rejoice in evil. There's so much there. So let me give you the cheat sheet. Many of us growing up in school, we learn mnemonic devices for cheat sheets, right? Um, in chemistry and physics, you learn Roy G. Biv, right, which was the color spectrum. Or in English, you learned I before E, except after C, which I still don't understand, right? I don't even think that's true, but whatever. But we learn these things, and they're called mnemonic devices. Sometimes they rhyme, but the goal is to help you take a lot of knowledge and pack it in to a very short space in a sentence. And what he does here is he gives them a mnemonic device that literally, if you read it in the Greek, it rhymes. So I'm going to give you that rhyme, but I'm going to give it to you in English because he's using a specific type mnemonic device that we don't use as Americans or even as English speakers 
um, where he's got four words, but those four words are really two thoughts. And because it rhymes, it gives you this like two-step kind of deal where it's like this doop, 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 where it kind of repeats itself. Um, and it's not as easy to pick up on in the English, but underneath it, he's giving these two different thoughts. And so here's the thought of love. He's like, let me give you the cheat code to love. It's love encourages the best, and love endures the rest. It's like it encourages the best, it endures the rest. It encourages the best, endures the rest. That's, if, if you were going to read it and kind of translate it in the way it would have been kind of the full essence of it, that's what it would have sounded like. Love focuses on the best, and, and it and it knows how to work together to fix the rest. There's just this idea, this tension. Because most of our relationships, our struggles, are that we fixate on all the rest, and we forget the best. Right? Whether it's a friendship, whether it's a marriage, whether it's a dating relationship, usually when it starts to go south, that's what happens. Is we start to fixate on all the other things in their life that we don't like. The rest. And we forget all the best that, that led us to make the choices we made in the front side. And Paul is saying, look, that the best and the rest are critical. And that you have to learn to encourage, to focus on the best. And endure the rest. So those are kind of the two, this two-step for love that Paul gives us that I think are these two helpful tools to carry in. So what does it mean to encourage the best? What does that look like? I think it... To encourage the best means that you go in intentionally on the lookout for it. You see, I think whatever you fixate on, you find, right? I was reading, recently I was reading a book by, um, it was a biography on Elon Musk, who um, one of the three companies that he, um, he helped to start is a car company named Tesla, okay? Um, I, I think Teslas are really cool cars. I read this, um, this biography on Elon Musk, and all of a sudden I start seeing Teslas everywhere, like, oh, there's a Tesla. Whoa, another Tesla. Like, I start seeing them everywhere. And then I'm driving down Providence. I'm like, oh, they're, they're building a Tesla dealership. Now, all those things were real. All of them existed prior to Elon's Musk biography, right? And me reading it. But it wasn't until I was focused on that that I started to find it. And Paul's saying you have to go into your relationship focused on the best. Going in to look for it to notice it, focus to find. And this isn't just marriage. This is, this is any relationship with your kids, right? With, with your best friend, with your coworkers. If you work with someone for 40 hours a week, for a year, 10 years, or 20 years, it's easy to find the rest, right? They listen to their music too loud. They... they light those stupid smelling candles every single day and it just creeps over to my cubicle, right? I mean, you can find something and focus on what they do that annoys you. But when you focus on what's the best things about them, when you make that, when you make that the focal point of what you're looking for, you start to see it more. And when you realize that when you step into a relationship someone that you've been given a front row seat to, and, and, and a, like an incredible, incredible opportunity to step into their life to not just encourage the best, but to bring out the best in them. Great relationships 
bring out the greatness in both people. I am a better man because of my wife. I mean, I joke quite frequently that without her, I would probably be living under a bridge sucking on a bouillon cube for sustenance in life. Right? But that's where I would be. Chicken bouillon on Monday, beef bouillon on Tuesday to keep some freshness in my life. But because of her, she has influenced me and she has brought out the best in me. Because love has power, doesn't it? When someone steps in your life and they start to believe in you and they start to see something in you and they call it out, you start to change. Right? I mean, every great person who has ever lived, whether it's in the realm of relationships or whether it's in the realm of professional kind of like skills, every single one of these people, when you sit down with you and you're like, tell me your secret, tell me how you got here, tell me about your journey, all of them always involve someone believing in them before they ever did. Every single one of them. And if you were to walk into a prison and sit down with a man or a woman and say, tell me your story, it always involves people and the impact that they had on their life, negative too. Relationships are not neutral. They are the most powerful things we do every day. And because we are so innately kind of just completely wrapped up in them, we don't see the true power that they have typically until long after the person is gone. Relationships are one of the most powerful things we do every single day. And when you step into that relationship and you're on the lookout for the best, what happens is you can start to bring out the best in them. I mean, this week, um, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, I mean, you, you call it, every social media site was testifying to this fact because Kelly Clarkson gets on American Idol and she sings this song called Piece by Piece that will straight up make you ugly cry in front of your computer screen, right? You can't watch that thing with somebody you don't know beside you because it'll be embarrassing. But she starts singing, and it's this powerful story about being six years old and watching her father walk out of her life. And the song is written to her husband, who steps into her life, and the way he loves her, piece by piece, her heart is put back together. And she says, because of how you love me, I believe that a man can stay, and that a father can love. Right? In, the, in the song, she's saying this profound, simple reality of relationships that you redefined love for me. And I am who I am because of how you've loved me. That's what we have the power to do when we step into someone's life and we are committed to bringing out the best in them. And very practically, what does that look like? When, first is that you're looking out for it. You start off in the morning, and you make, a, you make a choice to say, you know what, I'm going to look for the best in the people I interact with today. I'm not saying that you sugarcoat or that you ignore the rest. We're going to get that in a second, but it means you're on the lookout for the best. It means that you speak it to them. I think my wife is one of the most hardworking, incredible women I have ever met. 
Now, it doesn't matter if I think that if I never say it to her. You say, well, most of us don't say those things because we're like, well, they already know. Or I don't want them to get a big head. Most people, and most people just going through life, a big head's not really a problem. The moment you step in your car and you start driving on the interstate, or you pick up a phone to call a customer service agent, or you deal with something with your kids at school, there's, there's a lot in our life to deflate. There's not a lot of things in life to inflate and to uplift. And to be able to say, I'm, just, I'm, not, gonna, I'm not just going to look for it. I'm going to speak it to them. And I'm going to say, you're, you're such a hard worker. Our family is the way it is because of you. Or, you know, our business would not be as successful this quarter as it, if it wasn't for the way that you just don't give up and the way you don't back down on sales. We're seeing incredible things. Or the way you speak to a nurse that you work with every day and the way that you just call out, hey, the way you make patients feel better, you make every single person's job on this floor easier because you tear down walls with just the way you smile at them. I mean, it takes 30 seconds at most to notice something good and to say it, but I'm telling you, when you do it and you start to bring out the best, it starts to change them. And you express gratitude for it. And when you're starting to focus on the best, eventually, yes, there is a point where the rest comes into equation. And that's where you have to endure the rest. See, Paul uses some interesting words um, when the two words that he uses that talk about endurance and perseverance and bearing. You see, there is a type of um, enduring that's passive. Right? A a passive endurance is... um, you get struck by an object. You just get hit with something, something heavy. That's passive, right? You had no, you had no, like, just it happens to you. But then there's this other idea of endurance in the Greek language that's active. And Paul uses that word. Passive and active endurance look completely different. Passive endurance is just survival. It's neglect. Active endurance is strength training, right? You can be hit with one weight, or you can take that same weight when someone's trying to hit you with it, and you can push back on it, and you call that weightlifting, don't you? you? You take a weight that's being pressed against you, right, whether it's through gravity through another person, and you push back up on it. That's called active endurance. That's strength training. It makes you stronger. Paul uses this picture of being this endurance of being in a kind of a foxhole in a battle with someone and you're enduring the enemy trying to come in. And passive endurance is surrender. Active endurance is called a battle. And it's this picture he's using of like two people in, in this war kind of engaging against this enemy pressing in. Active endurance. Let me kind of give it to you in the relational world. Um, Passive endurance of the rest is talking about your spouse to someone. Active endurance is talking to your spouse about the problem. Huge difference. Passive is just complaining to others. Active is having a conversation with the person about the problem. See the difference? Huge and the fact Paul uses this active is because you recognize if you're active in your endurance, then you have 
an ability while you're focusing on the best and bringing that out to engage with the worst and shrink it down and to make it better. And Paul, I think, uses words that are, are strong, heavy words, because if you don't, you can think, oh, he's just brushing over the challenge of relationships. We're all broken people. Right? We all have really bad days. And when, you in a, when you're in a relationship with someone, you see all of the worst about that person. But you have a choice that you can also see the best about them, too. Very practically, where this starts to play out, and how do you assume the best about them? Well, one is in this idea of intention versus impact, and Jason alluded to this last week even about communication, right? All of us have been in a place where our intentions were good. Honey, I think you need to lose some weight. And the impact is bad. Please put the knife down, right? Like we've all been in a place where we had this good idea, this good intention. It's about health. It's about like going the long haul together. And then all of a sudden you're like, this is, I got to dial 911. Because plates are flying. People are screaming. And it's the intention and the impact did not align. Because they heard something. It landed on their ears and then their mind completely different than how you sent that sucker flying from your mouth. It came from a good place but it hit a bad one, right? And to assume the best means that if you're in a relationship with someone, that you give them the benefit of the doubt. And to say, you know what? Maybe in this moment, while what he just said was the most moronic thing that he ever has said before, I know him. And I'm committed to finding the good. And I'm going to assume that it came from a good place. So I'm going to say, instead of throwing a plate at him, I'm going to say, all right, um, let's just be, um, I know you thought that that was going to encourage me. I know you thought that that was going to help me. But whatever you thought it was going to do, it has done the exact opposite. So I'm going to give you an opportunity to rephrase, to clarify, to add on, or to take away what you just said so that we can have a conversation about this. Because if we're not assuming the best, if we're not aware, here's the thing, we want that with others, right? When, we're in the, when it's reversed and we had good intentions and our employee blows up in our face, we're like, but I didn't mean it to come... We, why can't they just see, or I wish they'd given me the benefit of the doubt? I mean, this is what Jesus even says to the disciples, like to this huge group of people gathered that we now call the golden rule, where he's like, do to others what you wish that they would do to you. We want people to give us the benefit of the doubt and assume the best. So how about do it for those that we're in relationship with? Another way that I think traffic really fleshes out is this idea um, circumstantial versus character, right? So if you're driving down 93 or the turnpike and somebody cuts you off, they're filling the blank with words I can't repeat on the stage, right? Um, you've got all the reasons that they're the worst person ever. You hope their tire blows. You hope their dog dies because they're evil. I mean, you can, and all these things for what's wrong with them. Now, you cut someone off later that day, 
You're like, oh, I was running late. I gotta, I've got to get this meeting. It's really important. This is, this is like my job's on the line or my kid's sick or I, I've, I've got to get to that appointment later tonight. So I, you've got all these situational reasons for why you just did what you did. Now, for them, they were just a horrible person. It was a character flaw. For you, it was just a byproduct of your circumstances. And we do that to others. Where even when you cut them off, if you're one of those like sweet personalities that we really are grateful are in the world because they stop wars from happening, when you cut someone off, you're like, oh, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. And you're in the car and you're like apologizing and waving and the person behind you, because they're not doing situational, they're doing character assessment, they're like, she's trying to give me the bird right now. Like, I mean, they're just like everything, ab- and, but you're like, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. And you've got, you're like all these reasons in the car by yourself for why you're not a bad person, but they think you're a bad person and it really bothers you, but I'm not really a bad person because here's the circumstances. But what if we did that with the person in our life? Instead of making a character evaluation, we ask about the circumstances. He walks in, he storms in, he doesn't speak to you, he doesn't speak to the kids, and instead of assuming a character issue, you're like, I wonder if he had a horrible day. Or she's just not listening to me. She just doesn't care. To say, hey, um, I can see you're a little distracted. What's going on? I mean, something that my, even in my relationship with Jenny that we've had to process through, because being a pastor, there are days where I get phone calls that um, can upend you. And just emotionally, you're kind of a little off kilter whether it's you're with someone when they die or whether it's with someone and you've just heard about an affair or their kid has just passed away. I'm telling you, like, life happens. And sometimes I don't get warnings. I get a phone call or Jason gets a phone call and we're dealing with it. And I come home with that. And I'm a zombie. And I'm so grateful that my wife practices this and says, you look like you've been hit by a truck emotionally. What happened? Instead of, She's talking to me, and I'm, like, not present because my body's there. And she, she gets really angry because I don't care. And I think that when we're willing to practice those things and assume the best about relationships in our life, then what can happen is things start to change. Because it's really easy to fixate on the rest and forget the best. But when we're intentional about it, we can start to experience greater things. So, for example, Seinfeld, one of the greatest television shows one of the most, um, like, highest-grossing television shows ever. Seinfeld, Star Wars, one of the greatest movie series ever, one of the highest-grossing movie series ever, period. Right? The Xbox, laser printers, LED lighting. The list goes on and on. But all of those things, here's what they had in common. They all were cut. They were all shelved. They were all written off as bad ideas. But someone believed in it enough to keep pressing into it to say, you know what, I think this is a good idea. Let's not give up yet. Seinfeld was literally bankrolled by one executive who was not even in the like sitcom arena for the, the, the original kind of pilot episode. They bankrolled it with their own department's money because they believed in the TV show, even though every single test audience that watched Seinfeld and every single executive that watched the pilot thought it was the worst idea in TV history ever. It's a show about nothing. Who's going to watch a show about nothing? 
And this guy said, no, this show about nothing is something. And it's going to be huge. And I'm going to use my budget to pay for it until you see it. Here's the thing. All those things, they became cultural icons. They became things that redefined industries. And, but most people had written them off. And many of us are sitting beside someone today. Or we'll go home to someone today or are working with someone who you're in the same place of wanting to cut it off because you think it is the worst idea ever. And I'm telling you that it's quite possible that you're looking, that you're staring, you're on the edge of something that could be incredibly great, that could redefine future generations' definitions of love, that could reorient people in your workforce because they see what healthy work relations look like. That you have the potential to build something great. Because here's the thing about relationships that I love. When two people stand at the altar, just to use marriage for example, and they say, better or worse, to death do us part. The end of their relationship, whether it's through death or decision, they get the relationship that they built. And that's, that's heavy. Right? And it could be that you tried to build something great and they didn't. But you get the byproduct of what both of you put into it. But if you happen to be in a relationship where you're both willing to build something, you're both willing to work together, whether it's marriage or whether it's friendship or whether it's a business partner, if you're in a relationship where you're able to say we're both in this thing, together, then what can happen is the cumulative effect of daily looking for the best in one another and enduring the rest with one another, that what can happen is that you build something completely better than you ever could imagine had played out. Because relationships are one of those rare things in life that you and I have the power to build. And here's the beautiful thing about love. If you build it, if you develop it, love is the only force that has the power not just to transform an individual, but to time travel and affect who they are in the past and the present and the future. And that's what Kelly Clarkson said this week when she sang that song. Who I am in the past, that person has been transformed. You went, your love went back into the past and took this horrible memory and reduced its power. That love has the power to go into our past and to begin to breathe forgiveness into actions we've done. That has the power to step into our present and redefine who we see that person sitting across from us becoming. And it has the future impact of shaping something far greater than we could ever ask or imagine. And the reason love can do all of that is because at the end of the day, love was not a human invention. It is a divine, divine inspiration. It comes from God himself. And that no matter where you are today, whether you've built something great or whether you have taken the match and you have thrown it straight at it and it is burning to the ground, no matter where you are in the journey today, here's the thing about relationships is that the God of relationships can step into it. And with you, through you, in you can begin to build something out of the ashes that are far more beautiful than you ever imagined you could build on your own. And there will be a day that if you choose to work together, that when you both pass away, 
your children, your grandchildren, your great-grandchildren will talk about the picture of love that they saw. So on my side, I don't have that. But on my wife's side, this past, like less than a year ago, we buried her great-grandmother. Or buried her her granny, my daughter's great-grandmother. She'd been married for 50-plus years. And they loved each other in those 50-plus years with a passion that I'm like, I want some of that. I hope when I'm bald, which is already, um, but I'm old and, like, shorter and a little, like, ornery and, um, and just kind of forget things a lot, which I feel like I'm already most of those things already. Um, but that even when I'm that, I'm still loved. And that I have something that future children and future people who watch from the outside look to and say, that's what I want to have. And all of us can have that. Because we serve, we're present in the midst of today, a God of relationships.